0: We're in Matthew chapter 6 this morning. Matthew chapter 6. You can open your Bibles there, and we'll read that passage in a moment. Um, if you've been watching the news at all over the last number of weeks, you will have sensed just this growing concern for what is true, what is genuine, what is authentic. As human beings, we yearn for the authentic. We want the real thing when it comes to friendship, when it comes to family, when it comes to church. Certainly, we desire that God be the real thing. We're disturbed by fake news. Because of the way that we've been created in God's image to know truth and speak truth, we're disturbed by fake news. We're disturbed by posturing, by false advertising, by post truth conversation, by people that say that truth is no longer relevant in our day. It's no longer un- uh, important. We're beyond truth. No, the, the truth is we cannot live in a world of hypocrisy, it's just not sustainable. In ancient Greece the hypocrites they were the actors who used masks to play different roles. The hypocrites on stage would impersonate. And so on a stage in a theater hypocrisy has its rightful place. But on the stage of real life hypocrisy is anathema. It is despicable. So We need people that we can trust. We need to know people of integrity. What does God ask of us as disciples of Jesus? We're in Matthew 6 today. Let's just set the context. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, Jesus is performing miracles. People are being healed of their diseases and afflictions. So his fame is spreading. His fame is spreading throughout Galilee, not only in Galilee, but Judea, Jerusalem even, the religious center, and beyond Judea and Galilee too, Perea, the Decapolis in Syria. So in this moment, as the fame of Jesus spreads, what a wonderful moment to discover what it means to be a true disciple. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus climbs a mountain and sits, and the disciples come to Him. And Jesus says in verses 1 through 12 that those who are blessed in his kingdom are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Jesus says, These will inherit the kingdom, these will see God. And he says, if you are my true disciples, then you are the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world, so let your good deeds shine before others, so that your Father in heaven will be exalted, glorified, His name lifted high, made famous. I mean, you can hear the disciples asking, okay, well, Jesus, what would that look like? Could you give us some examples? And Jesus goes on to say, well, actually, your righteousness, it needs to surpass that of the religious leaders. It needs to exceed that of the religious leaders. I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And so, in relationship to others, it's not about not murdering, not just that. It's about not harboring anger toward others. It's about not holding others in contempt. It's not only about not committing acts of adultery, It's the way you look at others. It's about not lusting after others, not treating other people as if they were objects. It's not only about not taking oaths, it's about speaking the truth at all times. It's not only about loving your neighbor, it's about loving your enemy, praying for those that persecute you. It's not only about being good and religious, no. It's about being like your Father in heaven. And he concludes this whole section in verse 48 of chapter 5 by saying, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the thesis of the whole sermon. Disciples, your character, your heart, your mind, your motives, the way you relate to others, you are to be like your Father in heaven. So to be a disciple of Jesus is to become like the Father. You can hear the disciples ask, well, how do we relate to the Father? What does He expect? Let's open our Bibles in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus said, beware, disciples of your tendency to practice your spirituality more to be noticed by people around you than to be noticed by God. Beware of practicing your spirituality in such a way that you're more aware of the presence of others in the room than the presence of God among you. In chapter 5, verse 16, when he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, he's addressing the sin of cowardice. That tendency of ours to shy away if our Christian discipleship will in any way offend others. Here in chapter 6, verse 1, he's addressing a a difference in the sin of pride-filled, self-focused, self-serving spirituality that draws attention to us. So in both cases, he's talking about God's glory. A.B. Bruce, he summed it up well, commenting on this passage. Show when tempted to hide, hide when tempted to Show. In other words, if you're cowering in fear, then show up. Be bold. And if you're hiding when you should show, then you're committing a sin. And if you show when you're tempted to hide, then you too are committing a sin. Not the particular name that's used for God in verse 1. Jesus refers to the Father. This name is used 17 times in the Sermon on the Mount. In the, in the Old Testament, father language is used much less. God talks about His people, His chosen people, and father language is used as that, that people belonging to the Father. In the New Testament, father language is used in the same sense, but father language becomes much more frequent, and it not only refers to that, but it refers to knowing a person in an intimate way, knowing God as your Father, in a very intimate way. For example, Romans chapter 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So, Abba Father, He's not looking for a religious spirit. He wants relationship with the son or a daughter. The Father, He's not looking for external compliance to religious behavior that's acceptable. He wants a relationship with a son or a daughter, a daughter that desires to be on His lap, a son that desires to grab His neck, to be with Him, to know Him. So as disciples of Jesus, we practice righteousness Because we love the Father. Because we have the Father. In our text, Jesus goes on to talk about three pillars of of Jewish spirituality. Giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. Chapter 6, verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. In verse 2, Jesus assumes that his disciples will give, that they will actually give to the needy. Nothing was more important in Jewish ethics than charitable giving. But the religious leaders, they're doing it to toot their own horns, as we say. They have the wrong motivation. They're calling attention to themselves. Charles Spurgeon once said, to stand with a penny in one hand and to hold a trumpet in the other is the posture of hypocrisy. In today's world, it would be like allowing the offering plate to go by, and as it goes by, we put our offering in and we take a selfie. It's almost impossible to go completely unnoticed when we give today because you get tax receipts and there's a count team at Willingdon, and so someone will know whether you gave or not. The question is one of motivation. Do you drop comments about your generosity? Do you like to put your names on things? Do you... Like to be known to be a supporter of good causes. What motivates us? Jesus, he's criticizing the the religious leaders because they put on a mask and they play a role at religious gatherings and on the streets. They're performing these external acts of righteousness with almost no awareness of their inner spiritual poverty. They present themselves as generous for God's glory, but they're actually doing it for their own honor. And all of us are susceptible to this. We can sing, we can preach, yes, Pastor Ron, we can dance even. We can give, we can fast, we can raise our hands, do all of these things for our own glory, or we can do them for God's glory. Sometimes there's a debate around clapping in church can we clap after a song or can't we? So if someone claps after a sermon, is it all lost? Well, it depends on our motivation. You know, is it better to clap, say amen, respond in some way to what we have received from the Lord, or is it better to sit there in silence and be mute? The question is one of motivation. Preaching, singing, clapping, giving, raising our hands, it can all be done for God's glory. And if we're doing it for God's glory, then amen. God deserves the glory. And if we're doing it for ourselves, then may God have mercy on us. Because Jesus says that those who live for their own praise have received their reward. And that word reward literally means they've received their full payment. The word was used with the sense of receiving an account that had been paid in full. So the tragic irony is you can choose the fleeting reward of public acclaim, which literally lasts for a moment, and that is actually all you get. Or you can choose the reward of your Father in heaven. And that begs the question, what is the reward that the Father wants to give us? We'll come back to that in a moment. Jesus says, give to the needy. Because you're a son, because you're a daughter, And your Father, He gives to the just and the unjust. So the question is, in our giving, are we like the Father? The Fraser Institute findings indicate that around 21.8% of Canadian tax filers donated to charity in 2015. That's down from 25% in 2004. Statistics Canada states that Canadians donated a smaller percentage of their income to registered charities in 2013, giving 0.56% of their total income compared to 0.61% the previous year. So the question would be does that look like the father? If we live in one of the wealthiest countries on earth, and as Canadians we give about half a percent of our total income, does that look like the father? Evangelical Christians fare a bit better, usually giving around 4% of their total income. But again, the question is not how much we give, but in our giving, do we look like the father? Are we as generous as the father is? We are to be like him. So when we give to others, we are generous because the father is. And then in verse 3, Jesus says, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Not only should we keep ourselves from seeking the praise from others, but we should be aware of what's happening in our own hearts. It's so easy to congratulate ourselves, to slip into self-righteousness. Authentic giving is for God's eyes only. We give for the audience of only one, the Father. Jesus goes on. In chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, he talks about prayer. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door And pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Prayer, another pillar of Jewish spiritual life. Public prayers were said said aloud at set times, three times a day, morning, afternoon, evening. There were those that prayed discreetly, others prayed ostentatiously for everyone to see. Jesus is not condemning public prayer here. Remember, Jesus did pray in public. The feeding of the 5,000. He prayed at the feeding of the 4,000. The disciples observed him praying. The early church engaged in corporate prayer. So the problem is not public or private prayer. Standing also was not the problem. In the Scriptures, people kneel. They sit. They lie prostrate. They stand to pray. What Jesus is addressing is hypocrisy. Those who live for an appearance of godliness, who love to appear in public religious gatherings, who love to stand on the street corner in those places of public intersection where they can be seen. The question is one of motivation. Jesus says to His disciples, when you pray, again, He assumes that His disciples will pray, go into your room. The word room there refers to an inner room without windows, a storage room. Go to that place where you won't be seen, but your Father who sees in secret, will see you. And they're focused on the essence of prayer, the Father. Pray because your Father sees you. Pray because your Father knows your journey. He knows you intimately. He knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray because you're a son. Pray because you're a daughter. And your Father, He is good. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is slow to anger. He's, sovereign. He's powerful. He reigns over all things. He protects. He provides. Pray because your father hears you. Be real with him. Adore him. Lament. Be raw like the psalmist. Thank. Place your requests before him. He's your father. Sit on his lap or as Tim Keller says, hang on to his neck. That's what God wants. The Father has invited you into His presence to know Him. He is a good, good Father. And so when we pray, the Father is our audience. An authentic disciple has heard the invitation from the Father that the psalmist heard. Psalm 27, verse 8. You have said, Seek my face, my heart says to you. Your face, Lord, do I seek. You see, behind all true prayer is the conversation which the father seeks with his children. Our prayer is a response to God's invitation to sit on his lap and know him, to be in communion with him. Prayer is about nurturing that relationship. So we can ask ourselves some questions around motivation. When I pray in public... Maybe it is in a restaurant or in a small group or in the congregation. Am I thinking more about the people in the room or about the Father? Do I pray more in public or in private? If I, when I reflect on this, say to myself, actually, I don't like to pray, then have I even begun to understand what it means to be a disciple? (laughs) What am I about? Because prayer is at the essence of being a disciple of Jesus. Communing with the Father is at the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And if I do not like to pray, if I am not given to prayer, have I understood what the Father has called me to? Jesus goes on to talk about fasting. will reward you. Fasting literally means to go without food, to empty oneself, to humble oneself. Jesus is assuming that the disciples will fast, they will empty themselves. It's not bound to culture or to a moment in history. Fasting is for all time for all disciples. There are different kinds of fasting, of course, in the Scriptures. There are normal fasts, there are partial fasts, there are absolute fasts, there are corporate fasts. In both Old and New Testaments, fasting is encouraged so that disciples will humble themselves before God, repent for sin, lay special requests before Him, seek His guidance. In verse 16, Jesus says to His disciples, don't look gloomy, don't look somber, don't look sad. Don't look as if the world has ended, as if the Father has abandoned you. People would leave their faces unwashed. They would sprinkle themselves with with ashes. They would leave their hair, their beards unattended to appear. And Jesus uses a play on words here. He says, the hypocrites, they make themselves unrecognizable in order to be recognized. They neglect their appearance in order to appear. Hypocrisy. So instead... If you're truly my disciples, then anoint your heads, wash your faces. And what was that to symbolize? Well, people would anoint their heads, wash their faces faces before enjoying life, before eating. So Jesus says, celebrate life while fasting, because your Father, He's actually good. He's gracious. He provides. Fast and encounter God, life in its fullness. So when we fast, we celebrate the goodness of our Father. You see, fasting is about turning from self and turning to God. It's about drawing near to God. It's about aligning our hearts with the Father's desires. I think the epitome of hypocrisy for me was the testimony of an actor who said that he followed a certain religion. It wasn't the Christian faith. He was following a certain religion because he could meditate and invest in it and take out of it what he wanted. It served him well. So that is the opposite, the exact opposite of what Jesus is talking about here. We pray and we fast in order to align our hearts with that of the Father, not to get the spiritual realm to do stuff for us. We pray and we fast Not to get something from the Father, to manipulate His hand in some way, but to align our hearts with what He wants to give, what He desires. So what would the Father want to give us? You know, the Scriptures, they say here three times, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So how does the Father want to reward us? Well, the reward that the Father has for us, it's for time, and it is for eternity. It is for sons and daughters. C.S. Lewis writes, The proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, like a medal or a financial gift, but are the activity itself in consummation. So what is the ultimate reward that we are to live for? What is the consummate reward? Well, a disciple lives for the reward of knowing the Father and being like Him, being like the Father. The deep joy of authentic relationship with the Father, of hearing His true voice over our lives, the deep joy of being authentically like the Father, being genuinely transformed into His likeness, the knowledge that there is a day coming when we will be like Him perfectly. That's what we live for. And what are the implications in time in this life? Well, we give because the Father's generous. We pray because the Father has invited us to know Him. We fast to turn from self To God. And as we do that, as we do these three, we meet God and turn our eyes from ourselves to those around us and we begin to give to others. We pray and fast for others. We pray for the kingdom to come. Next week, we'll look at the Lord's Prayer. And what are the implications for eternity? Well, we certainly don't live for an enormous mansion in the sky because if we're living for that, we've missed it completely. We live just to have a room in the Father's house. house. To be a son, to be a daughter, to be with Him. To know Him as He is because life is found in knowing God. So we hunger for it. We thirst for it. We want to be with Him. That's the joy of prayer in this life. We can experience eternity There being with the Father the closest to eternity that we will ever get in this life. So we commune with him. That's why it's such a gift for the Father to invite us into his presence through Jesus. To know him. To experience life in his fullness. And one day we will be completely like him. The real thing. Amen. Let's stand for prayer. So, Father, thank you again for your word, which challenges us, convicts us, and at the same time encourages us, enlightens us, spurs us on. Oh, Lord, may we desire to know you, to be like you. Thank you for that desire which you place in our hearts by your Spirit, Lord, when I look at my own life, I so easily slide into self-righteousness. I can so easily do the right things for the wrong reasons. And so, Lord, I place myself before you. I place my brothers and sisters before you. And I thank you that you are faithful to complete your work in us. Thank you that you keep drawing us to yourself by your Spirit. May we respond to those promptings. May we find ourselves in your presence today and throughout the week. May we live for your glory, Jesus. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.